Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand and let's open together to the book of Ephesians. We are still in the first chapter. In fact, we're still in the introduction, the first 14 verses. Lord willing, we'll conclude the introduction today. We're talking about God's eternal plan of redemption. And we've seen a number of wonderful theological truths so far in the first 10 verses. For example, we've seen that in eternity past, God the Father chose us, the elect, to be objects of His sovereign grace. We call that the doctrine of election. Then last week we saw that in time and space, God sent the Son, the second person of the Trinity, to break in in human history, live a perfect life, shed His blood, die on the cross for our sins, and we call that theological concept redemption. He purchased our freedom, in other words. This morning we come to the future aspect of our salvation, and no surprising, it's the work of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to seal us eternally as the Lord's possession until that day when we uh, receive all of the benefits of salvation. We call that glorification. So let's back up to the beginning, verse 1, and let's read the entire introduction through verse 14. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption, through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance." having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. May the Lord add His blessing the reading and hearing of His Word. Now I said when we began this study back in January that the book of Ephesians is sometimes referred to as God's treasure house of blessings. It's in the book of Ephesians that we find most clearly delineated and laid out all the blessings that accrue to believers as a result of our relationship to Jesus Christ. Now here he tells us that believers in Christ have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. That is all-inclusive. Everything that God lists and promises in the Bible is available to believers. But there is this holy tension in the Bible between what is already and what is not yet. 
One of the problems that I have with the television preachers, one of the many problems I have with them, is that they tend to have what I call an overrealized eschatology. Uh, they talk about heaven as if it is already here, that we can have perfect health, that we can have everything that we ever imagined and never have any problems in the here and now. And I'm here to tell you that's just not so. The Bible speaks of a day when uh, we are free from not only the penalty and the power of sin, but also the presence of sin, where one day every tear will be wiped away. But that day is not today. In fact, Jesus seems to indicate that in this life we can expect to have trouble and a lot of trouble. So there's this tension of what are ours now and what awaits us in our heavenly inheritance. Well, let's examine that today. First of all, let's look at the promises that God has made so far in the first 10 verses. In verse 4, he says he's going to present the church holy and blameless. That is spotless, without sin. And we say that's the way that God views His children today. Positionally, because we are in Christ, remember, He can look to us and say that one is clean, even though, even after we're saved, sometimes we sin. So in verse 5, He makes another promise. He says He's adopted us into His family. It's not just that through the blood of Jesus we were made neutral in the eyes of God. We, we know we were enemies of God before we were saved. It's not just that He brings us to a point of neutrality. He now makes us one of His own children, invites us into His forever family. What a great promise that is. In verse 7, He says He's setting us free from the penalty and the power and ultimately the presence of sin. In verse 8, says He is lavishing on us His grace. Remember, He's not just meeting it out in small portions. He's breaking open the alabaster jar, as it were, and lavishing His grace upon us. And in verses 9 and 10, He says He is letting us in on His will that has been hidden in the past. He's now making it known that the consummation of human history is when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we get to be in on that. Now in verse 11, which is our text today, He adds one more exceeding great and precious promise. Look at it. He says, in Him. Remember I told you that uh, this prepositional phrase, in Christ, is so important to understanding the book of Ephesians. Here he just uses the pronoun him, but we can substitute Christ. In Christ also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. God has predestined that everything he has promised will be brought to us in his timing in what he calls our inheritance. Did you catch it? Paul says that in Christ, that it's because of our relationship and union with Jesus that was appropriated by faith and given to us as a gift by His grace, we have obtained, past tense, an inheritance. I take it from the moment of conversion, positionally, it is ours. Now we know an inheritance is something you're to receive later, right? Peter talks about our inheritance in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now hear this. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So there's this tension. There are some blessings that are ours now. I take it wisdom and courage and grace all of those things that are ours, our virtue of a relationship to Jesus, discernment of the Scriptures, and then there are those things that await us in the future in heaven. Now, in the Greek language of which the New Testament, of course, was originally written, 
when something was so absolutely sure to happen in the future, they would sometimes use the present tense. They would say it has already happened. I think that's what Paul's doing here. When he says we have obtained an inheritance, it is so absolutely sure that none of the blessings God has promised us will be lost on any Christian that he says we have already obtained it. Romans chapter 8, Paul says that we are joint heirs with Christ. And we think about this inheritance, scholars are, are kind of split as to what it means. Some scholars say that, well, the church is Christ's inheritance. And there's a sense in which that is true, that God the Father is giving all those who are being saved to the Son. Remember, no one comes to me, Jesus said in John 6, unless the Father sends him. And all that the Father sends, I will in no wise cast out. And so God is bringing the elect to Christ as a loved gift. But in the context of this scripture, Paul is talking about all the benefits that are ours, that are Christians, as a result of our union with Jesus. So I, I take this to mean that the inheritance is ours, Christians, and it awaits us in heaven. So there is a sense in which the fullest expression of our salvation is yet in the future. Now there's a sense, we said, past, present, and future. At a moment in time in the past, we were saved. If you're born again, you were saved, past tense. God justified you forgave your sins. There is also a sense, we said, in the present, we are being saved from the power of sin through sanctification. We are being separated from our sinful habits over the lifetime. But there is this future sense where one day we will be free from sin itself. And that is glorification. And I take that's what he means with this heavenly inheritance. Well, these are truly great and precious promises. But the question is begged, how can we know with certainty that God will keep his promise. How do we know these promises are real? After all, there's probably no one in this room who has never experienced a time when someone hasn't broken a promise. All of us know what it means to have a promise broken in our life. How do we know God will keep his? Well, he says that is the work of the Holy Spirit, to seal us in him. Now, the concept of sealing was very prominent in the days of the Apostle Paul and to a lesser extent today, but we can relate. There's a number of reasons we seal things. Those of you who are gardeners or farmers and you have livestock and, and you have some produce and you're putting it up in the freezer, you might can it or put it up in the freezer, you seal it, right? Uh, some of you have vacuum sealers and it, it keeps air getting in so that there's no contaminants there. It preserves the product. Well, there is a sense in which uh, the Holy Spirit preserves us. We as Baptists believe in the preservation and the perseverance of the saints. Once saved, always saved. That is when God pronounces us not guilty and justified, we can never lose our salvation because God is the one who is preserving it for us. And that is sealed by the Holy Spirit. Another reason that we seal things is for authentication. Up on the third floor in our administrative offices, a couple of the girls that work there are notary publics. And from time to time, someone has a legal document that they need notarized, they will come up and the girls will put their stamp upon that. It's a seal that declares this document authentic. And I think the Holy Spirit does that. When we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, it tells us, gives us confidence as Christians and tells other people that we are genuine, we are real, authentic. But the primary purpose of a seal in Paul's days was for security. It, it was a sign, and what a king would do, 
either on a document or on a tombstone. They would seal it with wax, and then that emblem, that symbol of the kingdom, often the king's signet ring, was pressed into the wax, and when it cooled and dried, it formed a seal. And the only person with the authority to break that seal was the king, or, catch this, one who was just as powerful or more powerful than the king. Do you remember in the book of Acts, when God the Father was holding that scroll in his hand and it was sealed with seven seals, I take it to be the title deed of the universe. The question was, who is worthy? Who has the authority? Who's equal with God? Who can open the seal? <clears throat> no one spoke. John began to weep until one of the angels said, stop weeping, there is one. Of course, it was Jesus. And one after the other, he began to open the seals because he had the authority. And so there's a number of uh, reasons for, for sealing. Philippians 1.6, Paul speaks of the preserving power of the Spirit. He says, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul knew of no gospel that started a person down the salvation road that didn't lead to ultimate glorification. He believed in the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. And it's the Spirit's work to seal us unto the day of redemption. Paul says in Romans that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now, there are three basic reasons why promises are not kept. Number one is malice. There are people, believe it or not, who will tell you things that aren't true. They will make promises that they're going to do things that they have no intention of keeping. We call that malice. Now, the second reason people fail to keep their promises is out of impotence. That is, they're not powerful enough. That is, they intend to keep the promise, but something overpowers them. They're not able to do it. And the third reason is forgetfulness or a change of mind. So, um, an example in the New Testament. Do you remember when the Lord Jesus uh, was taken down from the cross after his crucifixion? There was a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, who requested the body of Jesus. And to do honor to Jesus, this wealthy man had a, a new tomb that had been hewn out of, carved out of a, a rock or cave. And they placed Jesus in the tomb and they rolled the stone over and the Bible says the stone was sealed. And remember there was a Roman guard that was placed to make sure no one stole the body. And when it said it was sealed, I take that to mean that all the authority of the Roman government, which was the most powerful entity the world had ever known up until that point, was set in that seal, saying the only person <clears throat> who can open this seal is someone who's more powerful than the Roman government. Guess what happened three days later? Someone more powerful than the Roman government broke the seal. God is more powerful than, than the Roman government. So hold that in mind, the three reasons why people fail to keep promises, malice, impotence, and forgetfulness. Now secondly, we see the authentication of God's promises. We've seen his promises. Now, how does he authenticate those promises? There are a number of places and means in the New Testament where God authenticated the claims of Jesus. Now, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be God in the flesh. How does God the Father authenticate the veracity of these claims? Well, in the Old Testament, he did so verbally, which means by the word, the Old Testament written word, the prophets predicted who the Messiah would be. Isaiah predicted 
that he would be uh, beaten, that he would be rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He even predicted that he would be buried in this tomb of a rich man, even before Jesus was born. There was even a prediction in the Old Testament of what village the Messiah would be from, Bethlehem. All kinds of messianic promises given by God to authenticate that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Now, when Jesus came on the scene in time and space, God authenticated him audibly. On a number of occasions, God the Father spoke from heaven audibly and said, Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He did that at his baptism at the Mount of Transfiguration. Every time Jesus performed a miracle, God the Father was authenticating Jesus' truth claims. When he turned the water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana of Galilee, when he fed the 5,000, all the way until when he walked on water and ultimately raised the dead. Every miracle Jesus performed was God the Father authenticating who he was. But as we saw last week, the ultimate authentication that Jesus is who he claimed to be was his resurrection. At the resurrection, all of these promises, all of these truth claims came to a summary point, And when Jesus came from the tomb, it was God the Father declaring, I am pleased with my son. He has accomplished everything I have sent him to accomplish. Now it is the work, Paul says here, of the Holy Spirit to authenticate Christians. Now God the Father is unlikely to have your name in the Old Testament. He's unlikely to speak audibly in public to authenticate you. He is unlikely to validate your Christianity through the miraculous. But the way he does authenticate your Christianity is by giving you the Holy Spirit. By doing so, he seals his authenticity to your spirit. He sets his seal upon us and declares forever and always that we belong to him. And the third thing we see here is that how these promises are secured. Look in verse 14. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, he says, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Do you notice how many times that phrase is used in the introduction, to the praise of his glory? It reminds us every time God does something, the ultimate reason behind it is to bring glory to his name. Now we often have residual blessings from that, but the intent is, is to glorify his name. And so he says here, the Holy Spirit then is a pledge of our inheritance. You notice that he uses the plural pronoun our. And back up a few verses and you'll see why that is. Look at verse 12. He says, to the end that we, there's the plural pronoun again, who were the first to hope in Christ would be the praise of his glory. So Paul says, Christians like him, Jewish people primarily in that first generation of Christians were saved to the praise of God's glory. Well, not only them. He goes on. In him, verse 13, you also, that is the next generation of Christians, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him. And so the sealing of the Holy Spirit is not simply the domain of first century Christians or even super spiritual Christians. There are those that would teach you that the indwelling presence of the Spirit is only for a secret class of Christians. Don't you believe it? The Bible says if you don't have the Spirit of God, you are none of His. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. If you don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you're not a Christian. 
This is what he is teaching here. So Paul's saying, look, here's how you got saved. Last Wednesday night in Romans chapter 10, we had a wonderful time walking through the steps of salvation that Paul lays out in Romans chapter 10. And he says the first thing that happened, God sent a preacher. Not just someone who stands behind a pulpit, but someone who proclaimed the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You heard the gospel because God sent someone. By the way, according to Matthew 28 and the Great Commission, that's all of us, right? Go and make disciples of all the nations. That's the commission to every believer. And so you heard then this gospel message about Christ dying for sinners and saving sinners. And then the Holy Spirit gave you what he says is belief, which is the same thing as faith. You believed and then you were saved, right? That, those are the steps of salvation. Paul says, after you heard, you believed, and the Holy Spirit then sealed you with his promise. Now what this means is a pledge of our heavenly inheritance. Now a pledge is a down payment. It's a earnest money, if you will. If any of you have purchased a house, you know that uh, when you start the negotiating process, usually someone wants some earnest money. They don't want to waste their time with someone who really has no intention of, of buying this. So you put up some money. If it gets a little more serious, you'll put down a percentage. It's a down payment. All of these words can be what this word means here pledge. It speaks of a seriousness of intent. But if you really parse it down, this word has come to mean engagement ring. And I want to look at it from that perspective, the Holy Spirit being an engagement ring for all the promises that are to come. When I got out of seminary about 13 years ago, I said in the first hour I wasn't wealthy. Let me tell you the whole story. I was dead broke. I had spent literally every cent that I had saved for the five years after college. Um, not only that, I, I, I cashed out my state retirement and I spent that on tuition and I finally made it to the finish line and when I graduated I was broke. I had a degree and that was it, but I'd been dating a, a young girl here in the church that I met in Sunday school and I knew I wanted to marry her so I borrowed some money from my dad and I bought a pitiful little ring. And I took it to my wife where she was teaching elementary school. And after everyone had gone home, I asked her to marry me. She still wears that ring. And uh, if you've ever seen it, it's not very impressive. But I meant it with all my heart. Still do. What I meant is... I don't have anything now, and I may never have anything, but if I do, it's yours. Everything that is mine is yours. And that's what Paul meant when he says we are joint heirs with Jesus. Every promise that God gives through Christ by virtue of our being in him is ours. And that ring said a couple more things. It says, every time you wake up in the morning, you look down at it, you remember, I've promised to marry you. <laughs> don't forget and it was meant for other people to see, particularly young men in their 20s. <laughs> you may have to look real close, but this is a diamond. <laughs> and the only way that you're going to marry her is if you're more powerful than the one that gave it to her. And I'm a pretty big old country boy. God promises, hear this, as much as I meant that promise and still do, God's promises are much more reliable than mine. Because I'm a man. 
I have the capacity to break my promises for all three reasons I pointed out earlier. I'm capable of telling you a lie. I don't plan to, and it's not my habit to do that, but I know I'm a man and I can do that. And secondly, I, I can certainly make you promises that I can't keep because there's something more powerful than me. I'm not God. And the third reason people forget promises, they forget or they change their mind. Now, I've not done any of those and don't plan to do as it relates to my wife, but uh, here's God's promise to us. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He's promised to begin a good work in us, that is our salvation, see it through to the end, which is glorification. God will never make a promise that he will not keep because he cannot lie. That speaks of God's holiness, right? The second reason people break promises is that there's things more powerful than them. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. There's nothing more powerful than God. That's why Paul began to list out those things that might separate us from God's love. Height or depth or principalities or nakedness, poverty or sword, war. And then he says not even death can separate us from the love of God. So nothing's more powerful than God. So that's out. And then thirdly, he will not forget nor change his mind because he's a God. He says he's not slack concerning his promises as one, some men count slackness. You, you understand, by the way, that that term is immutability. God does not change his mind. Now, hopefully you're beginning to understand why we study theology here. <laughs> I, I occasionally will hear someone say, I don't know why we need to study theology. We just need to love one another. Here's why. Because if we didn't study theology, we wouldn't understand why God's promises can be trusted. That all of his promises are yes and amen. Because of his holiness, because of his omnipotence, and because of his immutability. Now, let me say this in closing. Those TV preachers that I'm so hard on. (laughs) There's an element in truth of truth in what they say, though you have to look really closely. Uh, The element is this, there is coming a day when we are gonna be free of pain and suffering and cancer and dying and poverty and death and all those things that make life so hard. And that's in heaven. That's part of our inheritance that God is guarding, reserving for us. And what makes heaven so wonderful is that We live in this here and now that's not heaven that makes us long for that day. So the Apostle John was given, I think, the greatest privilege in human history is that he was transported somehow supernaturally in the very throne room of heaven. And he got to listen in on the conversations there. And he was told to write down what he saw for our edification, for our comfort and encouragement. This is what he said. He said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven... The first earth, that's where we live now, passed away. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. That's why I think it's appropriate to use the imagery of an engagement ring. And so, who is this bridegroom? It's none other than the Lord Jesus. And the bride is the church. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, that's Jesus, is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, 
and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away, hear this, every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. That's glorification. And Paul says that, is, that he is so certain that that is going to take place, just as God says it will, that he can speak of it in the past tense. We have obtained this inheritance through Jesus. What about you? Is that inheritance yours? Or is this just a pipe dream? Can you even relate to it? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, you can leave here today with this heavenly inheritance, yours. It's by faith that it's appropriated. Reject anything else that you're depending on. Receive this free gift of grace, this atoning work of Jesus on your behalf on the cross. Repent of sins, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. and I thank you for the work of each member of the Trinity. God the Father chooses us before the foundation of the world. God the Son, at just the right moment in history, broke in and lived a perfect life and shed his blood on the cross to redeem us, to purchase us out of bondage to sin. And then the Holy Spirit seals us in our heavenly inheritance. He guarantees it. He's our engagement ring, Lord, of what awaits us in the future in heaven when you will wipe away every tear. And so, Lord, we uh, rejoice. We praise you for the blessings we enjoy now and the blessings that are yet to come. I pray if there is even one here today who has no claim on those blessings, that you would draw him or her by your spirit to saving faith today. Would you do it for your own namesake? Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.